Today, I'm excited to be connecting with James Hanna, Senior Program Officer of Market Dynamics with the K-12 Education Team at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. His work focuses on improving the design, awareness, and adoption of evidence-based programs, products, and services that support teachers and increase student success, including the use of human-centered design practices. Previously, James held roles with Leap Innovations and was a manager at Monitor Deloitte Strategy Consultant. James, welcome to Optimistic Design. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, really excited to have you join the show. And I think there'll be some great conversation today. Like the ed tech space is definitely continuing to evolve. And I think with the pandemic and everything, there's a big focus on, on innovation in the education sector overall. Maybe just to get things started, you've had sort of a unique crown with a couple of shifts in your career from engineering to strategy for growth and mergers and acquisitions, and now to education. Can you share a bit about your path into education as an industry? Of course. It's definitely been winding, but it's sort of grounded in sort of like the first gen experience. Since I was a child, I was so interested in technology and innovation and the push from my parents was, of course, to get a really a solid professional job. So first went into engineering. But the thing that I, I cared about passionately was like, how do I solve real world problems? And so engineering seemed really practical. And then there's a bunch of different ways that you can think about leveraging sort of that skill set and technology to try to solve bigger and badder problems. And then at some point in my career, I hit I hit the inflection point of what are the types of problems that are most meaningful to me? And again, given the fact that my parents came to this country in large part for educational and economic opportunity, leaning into education just felt right. And so Leap Innovations is a nonprofit in Chicago that works with Chicago public schools and those around it. And that transition, they were helping integrate ed tech and making that transition to bring this interesting mix of career experiences just sort of just sort of felt right. Yeah, definitely echo the same experience. My parents are also first-gen immigrants. So there was a lot of discussion growing up at home about the importance of, of education and, and the opportunities it would bring. I'm also interested, you know, when I introduced you, I talked a little bit about, you know, not only are you working in the education space, but you're applying like human-centered design practice, which we've talked quite a bit about in this show so far. Can you talk more about what first got you interested in human-centered design? Like, how did you hear about it? So there was the point in which I was transitioning from engineering to business, and I was heart just totally set on becoming a product manager, a product designer. You know, when I was when I was younger and I thought about engineering, it was like, well, I want to build really cool stuff. And then especially the more time I spent in engineering and sort of at this at this intersection of technology and business, the more you realize that just building a cool thing doesn't actually help you solve real problems. And so I discovered a dual degree program that mixed design thinking and innovation with the business, the traditional business school experience. And that was just, it felt so relevant for me because I just had that sort of intuitive, just under sense of the problem that the cool thing doesn't necessarily help. And thinking about practices and approaches that can help you better understand how to help who in what context and where does technology actually fit to do that. It just felt right. And then once I started getting into it and one step leads you to another once you're once you're down the path. 
And are there any like people or organizations or like sources that really influenced how you approach design and innovation from that lens? One of the practices that was sort of close to the program that I that I was part of was Doblin and the 10 types of innovation. And that one, just being able to think more holistically about it is not just product innovation, it's a product that sits in context, that sits within institutions and markets and all these other factors. That one really resonated and helped me think about, I've always loved to think about problems as holistically as my brain could possibly handle. And so bringing into it all these other factors definitely resonated for me. And so shifting gears from your background, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the K-12 education team in particular. Can you share more like the mission of the K-12 education team and your role there? Of course. The U.S. program at uh, the Bill and Linda Gates Foundation focuses primarily on improving sort of life outcomes, you know, being able to have steady pay and a meaningful sort of meaningful paying work especially focused on students who are Black, Latino, and come from low-income backgrounds. So as we think about the K-12 strategy within that, we are really focused on that K-12 educational experience and increasingly on math, which can be either some, a language that and skill set that unlock a lot of opportunities for these students or holds them back. And so... We are currently in a strategy refresh period. We'll be coming out with some new, exciting stuff, but it is largely going to be focused on helping these students, especially in attaining math, which can be a gatekeeper for too too many people. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And I know on our end, we're very excited to see like updates that will be coming out from your team soon. So, you know, keep eyes pulled to that. And then, like talking more about your role, so your focus is on market dynamics. Can you talk about what that means more day to day? Yeah, and apologies for that. That is a little bit of like inside baseball. It is a particular term within the foundation that carries salience across the context in which we work. It integrates thinking about markets and marketing and economics about how folks buy and sell products and services. And using basically the toolkit of design thinking and business and technology and integrating that into how we think about programs, materials, interventions, services, whatever it is that we think are beneficial to students. So in many ways, I call myself the non-programmatic program officer because I work with a lot of really skilled, experienced, smart folks who know what good teaching looks like, what good school environments look like. And I am thinking about how do we make sure that the types of products and services that we know support those types of environments and experiences for students and teachers, how do we help that scale across the country? So it sounds like as part of your role, you're you're thinking a lot about both education as, as practice, working with experts in the field, but there's also this background in design. And then there's also this focus on technology, especially when it comes to like education technology. So it's a really interesting series of intersections. And the use of technology has definitely shifted in education over the last two years with the pandemic. What do you think right now is most important to consider at the kind of intersection of this work that you're doing? For me, the most important, I mean, I know I'm using this word technology a lot. It is part because it is the background to which I come to these conversations. 
But I think the most important thing is to remember that technology is just a tool. It is literally a physical device and set of you know, zeros and ones and energy signals moving from here to there that help us communicate information way more quickly. And that, that does not make necessarily for good educational experiences. I'm sure all of us have heard headaches from parents or teachers or system leaders, whoever that you're in contact with or friends with, uh, close to about the headaches of trying to make this work in the pandemic times, especially trying to keep the attention of a younger child where so much of it is really interpersonal about the relationship with their educator and trying to mediate that through a flat screen just isn't quite the same. It doesn't mean it's not a useful tool for, for educators to use to support students, but it is just a tool. And so I think folks have been exposed to the limitations of what tools can and can't do. And hopefully, as part of that, you also recognize how to better think about using it as a tool and not as a replacement for anything more. Yeah, well, and definitely building on this idea of, you know, how do you use it as a tool? I'm wondering, you know, in the work that you're thinking about today, what do you think maybe the ideal role of education technology should be? I'm going to like use a cop-out design answer. I don't, <laughs> it is what the, what the educators and students say it's going to be. I think I like to think in analogies. And so my favorite one is the kitchen, right? Just, you can have the sharpest knife and the hottest fire and the best recipe from the best website. And that doesn't necessarily make for good food. So in my vision, there's some basic things that digital technology in particular can do to enable a high quality instructional teaching and learning sort of experience. And, you know, making one thing is what we sort of call instructional coherence. So if you have multiple different systems and multiple different sources of content, that you have some way of understanding how they do or don't connect. So if you're making a decision of, do I want to choose this for, like, for student X? Do I want to choose this thing or do I want to choose that thing? I understand if that is really an equivalent trade-off or not, right? And the more easily I can make that decision, right? Think about having to click through seven different menu thing versus dragging and dropping one thing. Like that makes the instructional experience way, way easier, but it really depends on having a well thought out sort of scaffolding and structure for all that to live. And there are folks with great, great expertise in instructional design, in good pedagogy, in what it takes for to motivate students and engage students towards learning. And so that can be well, in addition to human-centered design, that can be well-designed from another lens uh, and doesn't need to be recreated in every single context in every single school district. Now, that's a great analogy, thinking about the kitchen, like the full set of tool sets that you can have in the kitchen, This I maybe like in the ideal world, thinking about education technology being flexible in that same way could be something like that would be amazing to be able to build going forward. I mean, one other thing I want to make sure we touch upon is, you know, education is a really complex system. There's lots of different communities and organizations involved, which I'm sure is like a big part of the work that you're doing. And in particular, the K-12 team emphasizes the importance of supporting schools and school leaders to improve student outcomes. So in the work that you do, how do you approach, you know, the variety of stakeholders involved and the alignment that's required across school leaders, as well as teams that are creating the products and services that you're looking at for public education? I think there's two, two things that undergird whatever specific approach 
that we support. As a foundation and as a funder, I recognize it's usually the good folks in the field who are doing the work that we're trying to empower to execute. And we are trying to facilitate to the extent possible. But what tends to make for good conversation, for good sort of insight and productive struggle towards, towards our shared goal is one, sort of grounding ourselves in that shared goal that everyone sort of wants the best possible experience for their children. So experience including like high quality teaching and learning, high quality instruction, experience including feeling a sense of acceptance and belonging into the school that you enter, a sense of meaningful relationship with both the folks in the school as well as the work that they're asking you to do. And then on the other side, the second thing is appreciating that everyone is bringing a valuable perspective to the table. The educators know what it's like to try to run a complex and very local and multi-stakeholder sort of institution in a community. The in-classroom educator knows what it takes to manage the attention of 30 little people. The students know what it is that motivates them and what they're interested in. And so one of the reasons why I tend to like design thinking and these sort of set of research methods is it helps ground and bring uh, space for all of these different stakeholders to come to bear, right? Because you can bring a technologist to the table to say like, you know, once we have some insights about pain points, how would we iterate against trying to address this, right? You can bring a leader within the system to the table to say, what are the constraints that we can't break? Right? You can bring the different users to the table just to better understand what their pain points really are. Because right? you can always build another thing, but at some point, is it making some magic for them or is it adding to headache? And only they will really know that. Though, I know this is not a real quote of his, but you know, there's the old Henry Ford quote about building a faster horse. And everyone's still bringing a unique perspective and, and a valued perspective to the table. It's just making sure that you have some structure and some way to respect and integrate them all. Now, I think it's a really important point about the diversity of perspectives and the different insights that they bring to the table so that you're really solving not just like the right thing for one group, but actually ultimately like the right thing for the whole system. And so in addition to the complexity of all the stakeholders that are involved, there's also this, this question of scale, right? The goal of the K-12 team is to drive towards high quality public education across the United States. So in addition to the complexity, how do you think about designing at a national scale? So we tend to have partners that cut across the field at all sorts of different slices and angles. And so, I mean, essentially, regardless of who you talk to, you recognize that they are all operating against many, not against, but within many, many contexts, right? So going into a school in a rural versus suburban versus urban area, going to a school in the Northeast versus Midwest versus South versus Southwest, like any different slice of the country that you take, you are talking about very, very different contexts. I think that just that that needs to be sort of design criteria and something that is mentioned whenever you start making assumptions of like, does this go there? Mm -hmm. Right? Like if I have this insight from a program or product or service used in one place, 
what of it might actually be distilled and taken to another? So again, when I think about the role of, of technology, I think that is the thing that most easily scales, right? Humans don't scale. We're everywhere, but you, we're all unique. We all have our different experiences. We're all living and attached to these different contexts in meaningful ways. And so my ambition, especially as the markets person, is not necessarily to try to change or that, to change or modify that, but rather to do as much as I can that whatever we think is scaling is flexible enough to meet more people where they are, mm-hmm. right? In ways that supports these, this shared set of values of good experience, of good instructional learning and sort of relational experience for students wherever they're going to school. And so there is a natural trade-off between the extent of change that you can imagine, again, recognizing that technology is just a tool in these contexts, even if it comes with high quality professional learning around it and a lot of coherence, that a lot of it is still going to be the educators in the place and in their community and in the relationships that they have. And, you know, some of it is just out of my locus of control and I have forever ambitions to try to support more and more than I, than I'm doing currently. But, you know, when, if we are supporting an instructional materials partner to build something new for a new state adoption or for a new major city or whatever it is that they were thinking about how these various contexts and needs and user uh, experiences come to bear as they think about that. Yeah. No, I really appreciate like the focus in this answer on context. I think especially for education, we're talking about so many different contexts and so many different places with such a variety of communities that are involved. And one of the things I think is really interesting is you're bringing up context in this role in both scale, but sort of also like right sizing for communities is the role of design, especially human-centered design as a practice and equity-centered design as being practices that are sort of grounded in how do you understand context? How do you gather insight for context? So as you think about like those disciplines in particular, which I know is part of your work, like what do you feel is the role of design, especially human-centered design, equity-centered design in shaping the future of education? I am just going to harken back to my sort of the experiences and expertise that I come in with, like I think of it a lot as an engineering process where you start yourself grounded in your users and you think about these users in their various contexts to try to better understand why the status quo just isn't working for them. Sometimes it's working well enough, but there's, there's clearly pain points in the system right now. And then I am the markets person. I'm not a policy person, there's a lot of other elements of the system that might be affected. But as I think about technology and I think about the role of markets in particular, is about how do we bring things that could scale, whether it's regionally or nationally, how can we make sure that, how can we support the folks who actually own those things rather, especially as a funder, and making sure that they are meeting as many users where they are. So if that means better understanding school X in the South versus school Y in the Midwest, or there's lots of ways to think about context in terms of how do you define those communities? How dense are they? What is some of the historical context that 
makes the attendees of a school that that shapes the attendees of a school what is the access to resources that they have both in the school and out of the school right there was a project that we supported where they had fairly a fairly high quality instructional product but they saw that homework engagement rates were pretty low and the truth of the matter is that's a proportion of the students basically did not have stable internet access when they got home. So what they decided to do as part of their building and prototyping and testing was what would it take to get some level of access to these digital homework items onto a cell phone and in a way that was not did not take too much bandwidth that could be you know reliably synced that would work into the rest of the system so there's all these other questions but it's based on the knowledge of that context right so looking more deeply across that it's sort of you just pull from the the user experience and then you just go backwards to the technology to how does it enable how does it address at least part of the problem mm -hmm. yeah no that's a really helpful example i think just to bring to life the way in which you can solve a problem like using this kind of approach I'm also wondering more specifically, like, are there specific skills or practices that that you apply or or teams you work with apply that you think are especially important to consider when designing education? Again, this is this is a, a complex engineering problem because it's not just does the thing look nice and can you click through it. There's a lot of intention that goes into is this designed well to support the educational experience. And there's a lot of research. There's a lot of academics. There are a lot of very skilled practitioners that know about what does it take to get to high quality instruction and not just the materials themselves, not just the expertise of the educator, of the teacher that's working with the students, but all sort of the relational and context elements of the school, right? Is there a sense of, of sort of psychological safety within the school so that someone can offer an answer that is par-baked and be responded to in a way that, that doesn't shut them down, but helps them continue to think out loud and process and learn with their peers? So there's like a specific set of expertise, especially in the education sector, that I think is really, really important to integrate into design practice. And then on the design practice, more specifically, of course, there's there's base questions of empathy, but then there's recognizing how, again, how experiences can be very different from the one that you came in with. So challenging your incoming biases around when someone says this about like, I can't access, I can't access when, this when I get home. Mm -hmm. Like if you didn't think about the context of their home being substantially different than yours, right? If you came in and if you you know, you flew in to interview someone from a plane, like you're already coming in with a level of, of access to resources that might not be true elsewhere. So being able to challenge those biases of like, what is the, like, what are the real contextual factors that I, not, I might not see, right? How are they communicating in ways that I might not understand are super important. And then the last one is we, we tend to think with a lens around targeted universalism. I know that this, you know, this comes from UC Berkeley and it is often think of as an, an advocacy approach. But I, I sort of interpret it to think about if you want something to be flexible and useful across different contexts, you need to think about sort of the unique, quote unquote, unique users 
I know it is often called extreme user research, but you think about the unique users in unique contexts and how those pain points could be significantly different. And then how can you design to meet multiple, if at all possible? So those, those are a handful of the ones that uh, we tend to think about. And then when we work, in, especially with partners who go into the field and are doing the actual work, we work with them to make sure they are elevated. Mm-hmm. No, those are really helpful principles to think about. I think I'm just thinking back to like work that, that I've done in the education space. And I know work that we've partnered with you and your team to do. I think one of the things that is so interesting about equity center design is, is by nature what you're talking about of going back and actually re-examining like your own design process and thinking about what is the bias that maybe we're bringing in as practitioners, whether it's from other projects we've done and assuming things are the same way or from our own unique backgrounds and just like taking that pause to say like, what have we assumed kind of to be true that maybe is not true that we want to go back and think about as we're entering into. And along with that, like, I think one of the things that you'd also emphasize earlier with diversity of experiences and bringing in different groups of people is the importance of understanding intersectional experience and different contextual perspectives, including race and economic status, especially in education. So today in the work that you're doing, how do you approach understanding differential experiences across diverse student groups? Oof. So thing number one that I do is defer to the experts in this space because there is a lot of research being done on these differential experiences. I mean, you know, there's been persistent sort of, I've been doing my best to try to not refer to any kind of standardized tests, which are sort of like the systemic measures of quote unquote performance. But we know that folks of different backgrounds basically have differential experiences and differential levels of achievement within the education system that we have. And that those who do tend to come from black or Latin backgrounds or those who come from low income backgrounds, um, are just not not achieving as much quote unquote educational attainment as others but like these terms are also very thin they're very flimsy so thinking back to what we were talking about before with context so i am of brazilian background and i think if you were to think about the latino experience or want to study how to better address the latino experience in a school my background and my experience wouldn't necessarily be the one you thought of. That said, depending on who you were, you could come up with many, many different sorts of experiences that you could focus on. If you came from the Southeast and were very familiar with sort of the Chicano experience or you're in New York and Philly and thinking more of the Boricua experience, like these are all valid experiences that have their own nuance and culture and histories in their communities that affect how the students show up to school and affect the types of stories and problem sets once you get into the instruction materials that they resonate with, right? I think one that can resonate across cultures is like, if you grew up in a landlocked place and you start getting math problems or, you know, examples that had to do with boating, like it just wouldn't click for you. So if you think about trying to write educational materials and examples and problems and things to really engage folk and you didn't understand what are the things that are most resonant in their lives in their lived experiences and in their cultures it's just less likely that it'll like really resonate and excite them and this goes for all folks so 
you know, again, I deeply believe that we have a shared want to make sure that all of the students who show up in schools feel motivated, feel accepted, feel a sense of belonging, and feel sort of engaged in their learning experiences. And so better thinking with more nuance and more detail about who is the student that I'm really trying to reach and how are they different in this city and in this school versus another, I think is about getting to a place of building for more flexibility so that more students can be met where they are, so more educators can be met where they are, regardless of background. Yeah. No, that's a really thoughtful answer. I think building on this theme of we've talked about, like I think the whole conversation today of the importance of context and the variety of different contexts that there are. The other thing this brings to mind to me is the context actually broader around than education, but that intersects with it. So, you know, today there's so much conversation and context around racial justice equity in kind of like a community and social sense. And then there's also broader social movements that are all, of course, influencing student experience in school. So in today's context, how do you think about the role of equity-centered design, but also I think maybe how do you think the design field could do better to actually understand these conversations happening outside of education and then address designing for equity in education? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of ways to answer this question. And coming in from, in particular, my markets perspective, I am thinking about what can we do for a student today most quickly? So for me, a lot of that is, again, about just sort of respecting the different perspectives that, that folks walk into. I have seen sort of design design-focused projects where there's just a really, really broad lens about like, let us question all of the assumptions that we're walking in with. And I think this can be challenging because often what is in our locus of control to change does not vibe with that. So then we ask for a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of energy, like sort of emotional buy-in and stakeholder buy-in from the, from the different you know, community stakeholders or national stakeholders, depending on the type of organization that we're working with, to envision something that's significantly different mm-hmm. without real consideration to what is in our locus of control to change and what timeline. And so again, I'm an engineer, so I'm always thinking that like, what's the next thing that we can do? And so, you know, in some of the projects that, and uh, partners that I work with, That is what I'm thinking. Like, how are we setting reasonable and respectful expectations with the folks we work about the about the locus of control and the will for change that we have? Part of my experience in in my previous lives with like MA and growth and stuff is like there's always a change management challenge, right? There's a reason why the status quo is the way it is. And especially when we want to disrupt it, how do we build enough coalition? How do we build enough buy-in across stakeholders to make sure that's happening? And that is often what sets our locus of control, right? What is reasonable expectation for change that I have? And so within in my job, I try to be very transparent about that when I work with a partner or we see we're sort of funding uh, design research to go out into a place. Like if you're going to ask the time of the students, the educators, whoever, 
recognize like we are building towards this type of tool that might help you within this scope, not necessarily tearing down all the walls. And so there's a negotiation here. And then of course, circling back to them to, so that they see the, the effort of their work and the insights that they help us derive. Those are all very salient points. I think definitely, you know, I think we started off the conversation today talking about the complexity of education. And I think now we're also talking about the complexity of kind of social movements around education as well. So thinking towards the future and probably increased complexity, what is top of mind now as you think about the future of education, design, and technology? Like, what are you optimistic about? I'm going to go back to the just a tool. I mean, that's, it's, it's very glib. But I think it's also an increased re realization as parents have sat there and watched their students, their, their children, not necessarily engage, despite being on something that's been really well designed. And that's, you know, it's glib, but it's also hopeful to me, is that I think there's a recognition for more robust, more robust design practices to understand how do these tools support good instruction, support good learning experiences. And again, we've talked about thinking about that across context. And I think that's also become increasingly transparent the pandemic has done a good stress test on like why this type of problem set might work here and doesn't work there and why this high bandwidth thing works in this place but not that and so one of the places we're investing is trying to build a community of practice to better understand how do we mobilize how do we norm on more robust more equitable practices so that we can understand all the things we've been talking about and so i am really excited and hopeful about that well, thank you so much, James, for all of the thoughtful conversation and answers today. Like, I learned so much from the conversation and I really appreciate all the different things we got to touch upon. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure chatting with you and working with Substantial for a couple of years now, too. Awesome. And thank you to everyone out there for listening. Right now, James is also partnering with Stanford's D-School to build a community of practice called EdTech Remix. We'll be sharing a link in our show notes so you can learn more about this initiative. And to follow along and hear the most recent releases of our show, head to substantial.com backslash optimistic design. If you enjoyed today's episode, please also subscribe to Optimistic Design and leave a comment. Join us next time as we continue to take a future-focused look at design, ethical innovation, and technology. I'm Oma Lam, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.